Hey, 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 hey. Welcome back, libertarian socialists and wannabes. Pandemic, we're all quarantined, we're in a lockdown. My goodness. Yes. Very much concerning, I understand. Don't worry, nothing's under control. That was a uh, famous line from one of my mentors. And I've had a number of high-stress jobs in my life. And sometimes I'd have so much work that there was just no way I could keep juggling all of those balls they kept giving me. I knew that I was going to be dropping some. And the best I could do was catch it on a bounce. So, <laughs> you know, powers would be come by and they'd say, Hey, how's this going? Or that's going? I'd be like, Hey, don't worry. Nothing's under control. You know, it may seem like some gallows humor, but really, it's meant to put things kind of in perspective. I, I hope it's it, it's not really gallows humor. It's it's just a little dose of reality. I mean, the fact is is that you know, the actions of everyone are going to matter here a lot, and. It's not completely under any one person's control. It's our collective action. Collective action. Oh my God, socialism. Collective. Communist. Right? Man, it's real interesting to see them talking about throwing trillions down <laughs> all over the country here to fix this. When they said they didn't have trillions to like actually put in any kind of like real system to... You know, healthcare system that would prevent something like this. Like, I mean, people understand that. Uh, who read my book and and read some of the things I've written. That Medicare for all was not something that I was advocating. Medicare, if you had nothing else, I did advocate that, and that's in the book, uh, Libertarian Socialism American Style, which you can buy at libertarian-socialism.org. Um, so hurry over there while you're uh, got nothing to do and you're quarantined and or locked down, you got a book to read there. In any case, uh, now we have trillions for uh, a coronavirus bridge for the economy and the people. I'm not going to really commentate too much on what's going on uh, in D.C. right at this moment. We're all kind of dependent on them to do the right thing and to be you know, half freaking competent and not too corrupt. We'll see if they can actually pull that off. Um, but, my sons have come to me and talked to me and some younger people that know me have come and talked to me and knowing that I'm quite, I'm quite a history buff and I do seem to know a lot about that kind of backstory of the United States over uh, in history kind of asking me, and I'm old, you know, they're kind of asking me, uh, hey, is this the worst you've seen? This is terrible. And of course, you know, it is terrible, but is it the worst I've seen? Um, and I can say pretty heartily that no, it's not the worst I've seen. And just before I was born, uh, you know, I had a flu pandemic, an Asian flu, coincidentally, that's what it was called. Uh, and then after I was born, so after I was born, there was the Hong Kong flu, which actually took down my mom, you know, when I was pretty young, and uh, didn't kill her, but, you know, they actually had to call my dad. He was deployed. <laughs> it 
him, get him off the ship. Well, he wasn't deployed, but he was, you know, he was based on a, a ship, and, uh, you know, they were at least let him off the ship. I don't know exactly the, the backstory there, but in any case, uh, you know, those were real pandemics that really affected uh, the country, uh, Hong Kong flu and the Asian flu in 57 and in 68. And I also was only, uh, you know, born shortly after the, the uh, end of the polio uh, outbreaks that would happen every summer from like 1916 till sometime in the 1950s. There'd be polio outbreaks. And in the summertime, imagine, you know, when kids are out there playing and stuff. That's what's, that's what's getting them. And as a young, you know, athletic boy, there was nothing kind of really scarier than, you know, something that didn't kill you, paralyzed you. And I remember thinking, wow, I was so lucky to live in a time when I could get vaccinated. And, and to hear, you know, the anti-vax crowd now is just like, you know, mind-boggling to me. Because I remember looking in those nurses' and teachers' eyes. Cause sometimes they were really stern about getting the vaccine and, and getting vaccinated. And you could see the fear in their eyes. It was palpable. They remembered. They'd grown up in that time. They were still terrified of it. And they didn't want to see me have to face it. And, you know, I felt very, very lucky that uh, I should live in a time when vaccinations were, were possible. And, you know, uh, it's interesting to think, you know, now we see these, you know, we had, uh, there was a bit of a scandal in Germany where some American drug company tried to buy all, up all the research that the Germans were doing. The Germans have a very low death rate over there right now. They seem to be doing the best at handling this. And... In any case, Jonas Salk, you know, he creates this vaccine for polio, and he ends up giving it away. And no one's going to invest, I mean, invest in his, you know, drug company, because it doesn't exist. By some calculations, the man left somewhere in the neighborhood of 7 to $10 billion on the table. Uh, that's probably in today's dollars, but in any case, uh, left that on the table and just gave it away. Imagine that. It would seem that doctors today may have forgotten what the Hippocratic Oath actually is about. Uh, you don't make money off of disease and misery. You, you heal and you do the research to, to, to do that. And sometimes these vaccines that come out of these company, uh, companies, uh, Big Pharma, actually partially funded by American tax dollars, and they still get these patents, and just, oh, it's terrible. I have to support Bernie Sanders on just attacking Big Pharma at all times. They're terrible. But on the other hand, maybe the money people are the really ones pushing it, because I heard some investment bankers were really pushing uh, the... Uh, different manufacturers of certain drugs and or uh, medical equipment to <laughs> raise their prices and such. Oh, man, these guys are like just parasites. They are literal parasites, low-life scum, apparently. I, I, I don't know how to say it. But back to, hey, you know, have I seen worse? Then, as I get out of high school, there's a AIDS epidemic where sex is like killing people. Now, being a history buff, I knew that most of 
history that had been true, syphilis and such. Uh, but for most of the 20th century, well, a good part of the 20th century, it had not been true. And now it was true again that, you know, promiscuous uh, uh, behavior was going to kill you. Uh, so, you know, that was pretty scary. And, of course, when I was going into high school, the Vietnam War was still going on, the drafts were still going on, so... You know, I thought I was going to register a draft. I'm an older brother of a friend of mine got killed in Vietnam. And before you're even 21, your whole life is just hijacked because you've got your number comes up and off to war you go. I dodged that, thank goodness. And uh, then when I was graduating from high school, the, they instituted the draft again. And I was the first... Uh, generation that had to re-sign up again, right out of high school, 1980. So, those are pretty scary times. Now, I know they're not nationwide, I mean, in the case of the uh, me having to register for the draft or such, but I mean, as far as things being scary, like, when I was a kid, we used to duck and cover drills, you know, at any moment, nukes going to be landing in the playground and, you know, turn us all in the dust. And, but somehow duck and cover was going to save us. You know, as I got older and smarter in, in elementary school, I started to realize, oh my goodness, I think I'd rather be vaporized than die over the long, grueling radiation illness that I had seen described in books like On the Beach and such. So, uh, so I mean, that's, you know, when you're thinking that at any moment you're going to get vaporized, and a lot of children... I mean, that was in, that was there, that was real. Everyone, it could, it could happen. So, yeah, it's scary what's going on now. I'm not going to say it's not scary, because it's terrifying. Surely it's terrifying. But, you know, I've seen a lot of upheaval in this country. And I, you know, I remember back when I was pretty young that because this is an election season, I bring this up because think about what I'm about to, if it was just take what I'm about to describe to you and put it forward to today and just think about what you, how you would feel about this. So, and most of you probably know John F. Kennedy was assassinated and, uh, you know, I was just a baby, but I was, he, I was alive when he was president. He was assassinated. So, four or five years later, Lyndon Baines Johnson decides he's not going to run because Robert F. Kennedy's going to run the assassinated president's brother. And there's a lot of desire in the country, it seems, to get out of Vietnam. And RFK is, uh, Robert Kennedy is supporting that. That's his, one of his positions. And so he ends up winning California. And just a few miles from my house, as soon as he wins California, he catches a bullet and he is murdered. And the meeting... Democratic candidate, the presumptive Democratic presidential nominee is murdered a few weeks before the Democratic convention. And then there are just riots in Chicago. Daly comes out, busting heads, beating up the hippies, and blah, 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 blah. And it was all over TV. It was very crazy. And Hubert Humphrey comes out of that uh, convention. I mean, he was never going to beat Nixon. So, I mean, just imagine, you know, that kind of stuff happening. People just being murdered who are running for office. 
Now, I mean, one assassination, okay, stuff happens. Two assassinations, okay. Three assassinations in such a short time, one starts to wonder what exactly is going on. JFK is killed uh, in late 1963. And then in the spring of 68, Martin Luther King is assassinated. And shortly thereafter, so is uh, Robert Kennedy is assassinated. I mean, my goodness. This is the kind of stuff that rips a country apart. And in fact, that culture war continues to happen. It really does. Now, I bring that up because, you know, it's uh, part of this country's history and you can see how much that kind of upheaval uh, would just rip a, a country apart and be very scary. You know, it just seemed like the nation was uh, on the brink of civil war there. And one really wondered why people were getting shot so much. And I think it certainly drove some of the protests underground. And even though there was still anti-war uh, protests going on, Vietnam War went on for years afterwards. And I mean, the case could be made that part of the reason why the Vietnam War ends has to do with just the incredible economic upheaval of uh, the oil embargo because of the Yom Kippur War and uh, the Arabs said they're not going to sell oil to the United States anymore. We're not prepared for that. And when I, I first learned how to drive, I remember just lines everywhere. And that was the second one. The first one was even more shocking. And it seemed like the nation might crack that first time in 1973. And I remember thinking that my family was pretty lucky with having two cars with an odd plate uh, on one and an even plate on the other, which means, you know, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, if you were even, I think, and uh, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, if you were odd, you could go get gas, see if there was gas anyway, buy 10 gallons, something like that. And then Sunday they were closed. So, I mean, that's the kind of stuff that's going on. So, you know, when I was, I've seen that, I've grown up through that. And so... I'm definitely concerned about what's going on. I find some of the news conferences that go on in D.C. lately to be just terrifying. I can't really deny that. Uh, but, you know, we're not going to have complete control here, and we're probably not going to get a win here unless we pull together a little bit. And that's probably a, maybe a good thing. Maybe we'll look back at this. This is the moment when America decided to stop fighting about stuff in the 20th century and get together to move forward. Because we're facing, we're facing a menace here. It's crazy, the viruses aren't even really alive, but they're just, they seem like they're alive and we refer to them as killing them. But it's just like some fragment of RNA that gets into your body and, start, and hijacks your cells and starts, you know, making other fragments of RRA. It's just crazy. I, I've i had many a debate with, you know, biology uh, people <laughs> whether viruses are really alive or not. You know, it's kind of a weird thing. Um, but in any case, I mean, how can you really control this stuff? You can try, but again, it's our collective action.
our collective action. And, you know, our collective action, our socialism, could have made this a little bit easier because if we spent the trillions, you know, 10 years ago or so to put in place some, you know, maybe Medicare for uh, the, if you don't have anything, and control drug prices a little bit, uh, I think that when this thing first hit, we wouldn't have had a problem with testing. I mean, there's a strong possibility that there had been a lot of uh, COVID-19 cases that we just didn't realize at first, you know, in February and March. And that would have not been the case. I mean, Japanese got on it really quick and they seem to have it under fairly good control, barely. Uh, as well as South Koreans really got in, in trouble and then, you know, they did a good job of locking that stuff down. So, you know, I, it, it, it's definitely concerning, but, you know, that coronavirus that was about to colonize your mucous membranes, perhaps that butterfly who flapped its wings just over there blew that coronavirus away from you. You can't control that. Don't worry. Nothing's under control, right? But we can pull together and we can all accept that and we can control what we can control, which is our hatred of each other. And we have got to stop that. And I urge you to be calm. Quit hoarding toilet paper. You can't eat toilet paper. I mean, that is the worst kind of affluenza, isn't it? That's what you're worrying about, is whether or not you can wipe your ass. Goodness. And at the, at the very beginning of this, my wife was saying, we don't have any toilet paper. And I went to the store, there was no toilet paper. And I was like, okay. And I thought to myself, you know, I'm going to go down to some of these poorer neighborhoods nearby because I just feel like in Barrio, they're not quite as freaked out. And so I go down there, I find a little bodega. I find that he's got 40, 50 rolls on the shelf. And I'm tempted to buy every one. And I decide, nope, just going to buy four because if I take all of these, these people in this neighborhood aren't going to be able to go and buy a couple rolls. And I'm just going to be that gringo who came in and caused a shortage that didn't have to be. Now, of course, now I'm looking around for a bidet because we're going to go far. But that's, uh, that's neither here nor there. So the book will be on uh, Amazon soon. It's out there. It's pushing its way through the system now. Got the new cover for real. There it is. There's the new cover and it's a book. So, see the cover? I like that cover. I think it's kind of cool. You know, this is kind of the libertarian guy here. You know, that's the revolutionary. This is kind of the socialist guy here. You know, wearing uh, like a doughboy uniform. Because you got to remember in, in, in the 30s, socialism was not really a dirty word. I mean, Social Security, you have these things that... Uh, in a country that was in trouble and helping each other was was a given. Eventually we realized that and eventually I, I think we're going to realize that again. At which point the collective action, socialism, it's going to be something that we're going to be able to uh, embrace again without thinking it's somehow communism because it's not communism. It is collective action that 
we have to take together all societies of some form of socialism. At the most basic level, that is what the military is. The military doesn't make any money. It's supported by tax dollars. If the society does not think that they need a military, of course, they'd probably have some problems, but right, the society, the collective action society, funds the military. Unless, of course, they just go out and you know, loot other countries, which, of course, historically, that has been the role of some military. The warriors go out and just loot and pillage and rape. And that is, you know, those other countries, those other peoples, they don't matter. I mean, that has been man's history for quite a while. And in fact, when we look at this pandemic now, if we had some more uh, collective action globally and less conflict globally, might not have gotten so bad. And if you look at the worst pandemic before this one, talking about the 1918 flu pandemic, you uh, see that it's really born in the trenches of World War One. And it's chaos in the world beginning of the 20th century with World War One, And after World War One, there was a quite, and this pandemic that is born in the chaos of war. When you have a world war, people start to, I don't want to have war anymore. And you start to have more pacifism and peace and blah, 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 blah. But of course, we all know that Chapter 2 came along, and that was World War Two, And we had to fight another war before it really ended. And maybe we had kind of figured things out. At least that's what I thought. We created the United Nations. We did have collective action on the globe to some extent, led by the United States to a you know, great extent. In any case, I, I felt like I should put this out, give you some kind of historical perspective. Yes, it's crazy right now. Yes. But if we're nice to each other, we take care of each other, we don't hoard stuff, there's a chance that we're going to get through this and that we're going to be better for it. We're going to be better for it. Quit thinking about Republican, Democrat. I mean, my, I am so happy about my uh, governor not being uh, incompetent. I mean, Gavin Newsom seems competent. And if you look at the numbers, California seems to be doing fairly good during this epidemic, this pandemic, so much that even though we were one of the, had some of the first cases, most populous state, you know, if you compare us to New York and the other states, we're doing okay. We're doing better, maybe. We're certainly doing better than New York or New Jersey, which I, I my heart really goes out to those people because it does seem like there's going to be some serious suffering on the East Coast. And I'm hopeful that the, we can pull together the country and, and, and help mitigate it a little bit. So, don't worry. Nothing's in control. Why do you think it is? And I can tell you why you think it is. I happen to know, because I look at some of the stats of people who listen, people who go to the Facebook page, people who like the Facebook page, things like that. So you get some demographics about um, who was paying attention here who cares about what I'm saying, who might be a potential buyer of the book. In any case, biggest demographic is actually uh, young people. Young, uh, uh, young Americans about the age of my sons, which I guess maybe shouldn't be too surprising. Um, maybe I do have a fatherly way of putting things.
you know, haven't been a dad for a couple of decades. In any case, one thing that I pointed out to my sons and I will point out to you is that if you're under 30, you have never ever lived in a world without an electronic leash and bodyguard. At any point, you take your old little smartphone there, you call 911, call Uber, call mom, call dad. Your entire childhood, you were driven everywhere, probably didn't, weren't walking to school, and everything was tightly controlled. And so you're not used to the powers that be not having good control of things, as well as having a safety net, this electronic safety net. In fact, if you're not older than 40, your adult life, you've never not had this electronic lifeline. Now, for someone like me, who's too old, you know, John F. Kennedy's president when I was born, I grew up in a time when if you got a flat tire in the wrong neighborhood, that was a really big problem. How are you going to uh, get out? Do you have a spare? Ooh, spare not functional. Now what? Gotta find a payphone, because I don't see any cabs around here. Or I'm going to walk out. Or I'm going to appeal to someone to help me. These are the things that we called the safety net <laughs> when I was young. Not much of a safety net, huh? So, for us, we're kind of used to this. We're used to not having an electronic bodyguard. Now, I've also commentated a little bit about given the fact that the electronic bodyguard has been around for decades, why are there so many police and why is so much uh, violence still happening? That's for another story. Remember, things cannot be as tightly controlled as you think they can be. Because of how you've been raised, because of the nature of the society that you were raised in, which is probably no longer quite the same, after this, you're not used to things being so out of control. But the fact is, is for most all of history, things are really not in the control of individuals. Now technology has given rich people much more access to things that took time and energy to gain. I remember when I was young that you maybe would see some rich guy buy himself a giant freaking trailer, a big boat, a big um, you know camping trailer, and he you know he, very expensive, and then he get it home and he couldn't park, he couldn't back it into the driveway. And I was just watching this commercial recently where they they showed that very scenario, and then the rich dude pushes the button, and the truck just backs in. But in the old days, the blue collar people they had something that they would kind of cling to a little bit, which was the skill of experience. And maybe they didn't have the money to own that big boat or that big trailer, but they could park it because they were a truck driver or a warehouse worker or something of that nature where, you know, as a heavy equipment operator, you can do that stuff. And as a kid, I like actually aspired to be that blue collar guy who had the skill, but also had the money to have the thing. And ever since probably, you know, the mid to late 90s, rich people have access to this artificial intelligence, technology, and you just buy all of this stuff and then 
you know, act like they're better than the rest of us when all they had was money. And many of them were just born into money. So, that's why the meritocracy is broken in the United States. That's why you have this, you know, uh, varsity blues scandal. And that's why you have a certain amount of chaos now. Because there's a large contingent of the nation that's not used to things not being tightly controlled. So, don't worry. Nothing's under control. But, you, your, your emotions, what you do, what you say, how you treat your fellow Americans, that's within your control. And if we all choose to help each other, we're going to get through this and we're going to be better for it. Don't worry. Nothing's under control. Accept it. Move forward. Buy the book. Book's cool. Buy the book. Buy the book. If you don't want to buy the actual hard copy, you can get the ebook too. www.libertarian-socialism.org. Buy the book. It's not that expensive. You got some time on your hands. Real ideas in there from someone who's used to things not being under control. So, there's some perspective. Don't worry. Nothing's under control. But we can be nicer to each other. And remember, there's a lot of good ideas in this book. I do talk about Medicare, if you don't have anything else in this book. Libertarian socialism. Fiscal responsibility with socialism. That's pretty good. That's what I'm pitching here. Right? They're about to just throw trillions out there, and we don't even know if it's really going to help. And if we spent those trillions earlier, I think we'd be in a much better shape. So, don't worry. Nothing's under control. Oh, well, let me forget. I guess should do another chess lesson, because now everyone's in quarantine and locked down. Plenty of time to be playing some chess. So, Hang on, you want to learn some chess? I think I'm going to talk about castling this time around. Alright, castling. Going to castle. Yeah, interesting, they call it castling, but they call these actual guys, call them rooks. They call it the castle, would it be, seem like you're kind of inexperienced. In any case, so, castling. Castling is when you move your king to the side and put your rook that way, right? And you always move your king first. Two, one, two squares. Pick up your rook and put it there. Because in the tournament, it's a touch move. If I was to touch my rook first and do something like that, the opponent, if he's really a jerk, could say touch move you move that you touch that first you got to do that in this case when you do this because you moved two squares like that it's known that you are now going you signal you are going to castle and this is a much more defensible position putting you behind your pawns and stuff you, you know oftentimes you have you know three pawns there like that um, in any case there are some rules about castling. And some of those rules are 
that you cannot cancel into check. So if you see right here, this bishop can go here. So this would be illegal. Because it would be stupid, of course, but it's also illegal. You can't cancel into check. Now, if, for example, this guy happened to be here, you also cannot cancel over a square that's under attack. So I can't do that. So that's not allowed either. So, those are kind of the rules of castling. You do it to kind of protect your king. And it's an important thing to do, probably, certainly within the first 20 moves. Well, by the time you get to 20, you got some problems. I, I mean, first 10, 15 moves, you really should get yourself castled. You develop your pieces and get yourself castled. No question. In my mind, as a player, as a tournament player, that's, you know, that's what you want to do. Now, there's also something known as long castling, which if that queen wasn't there, boom, now the rook moves way over. That's queenside castling. This was kingside, that's king, this is queenside castling. Now, uh, another rule is that you cannot castle out of check. So, for example, this guy was not there, and I was in check, I could not castle like that. Or, I couldn't castle out of check. So, cannot castle out of check. You cannot uh, castle over a square that's under attack. You don't want to castle into check. And you want to touch king first. Pick it up. So if you slide over, you know, then it's like, oh, if you, let, if you accidentally left your hand off there, again, a person who wasn't very friendly might say, oh, you can only do that because you touched it and you put your hand off. So, pick it up, move it over, that's castling. 